Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have four students with me here today. And we are going to talk about a case presentation. And it shouldn't be a surprise because you'll read the type of uh, podcast that it is, but we're gonna pretend like you didn't and start as if this is all a mystery. So let's do some introductions. And how about if we start to my left? Hi, I'm Steven. Uh, I'm a uh, third year medical student from Rocky Vista. Hi, I'm Colby. I'm a psychiatric NP uh, student at University of South Alabama. Hi, I'm Valentina. I'm a third-year medical student from Rocky Vista as well. And I'm Gio. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. And today, we're going to start with Valentina, who um, is going to provide a case presentation. And then we'll try and figure out what... Uh, we'll try and guess what you've put together there for us, Valentina. How sounds does that good. Sound? Yeah, right. sounds great. So um, I'm going to pretend like I'm already a doctor and someone's coming in to see me for the first time and it's a 29 year old male who comes in and I'm working in a primary care office and he says that he had an episode with chest pain. He describes that yesterday he was taking an exam, put in whatever exam gives you a lot of stress oh. in here. <laughs> And during the exam, he had an episode of sharp chest pain that went across the top part of his chest. He says that the pain went away after an instant, but it really scared him. And it wasn't super bad on an intensity rating. He describes it as a 2 out of 10. But after that pain, he started to get some associated symptoms. He started to feel like his uh, chest was tight and his breathing was getting pretty shallow. He felt that his vision was darkening around the sides, so kind of like a tunnel vision, um, and that he just felt like very anxious. His body felt really stiff, and he felt like his heart was beating really hard, like a pounding sensation. And he felt so worried that all he wanted to do was leave the exam, but he thought that if he moved to leave the exam that he would pass out or faint. Um, during the time, he was really worried because he felt kind of like he was going to die and that he was having a, a panic attack. So at this point, as a medical provider that doesn't have um, a lot of psychiatric experience, I decided to do some tests on different medical causes. So what kinds of tests do you guys think I would order for medical causes? I think a thyroid panel would be good. Yeah. That Check was on my TSH, list. Yeah. Perfect. Steven, do you have any? Yeah, try to look up uh, any uh, the adrenal, how the adrenal glands are doing. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Do you have any ideas, Colby? Um, other than thyroid and adrenal? Mm-hmm. Maybe a, maybe a talk screen. You know, a lot of drugs could mimic that kind of uh, symptoms. Perfect, yeah. Would you like to guess anything, Dr. Rodney? <laughs> well, I, I might... Uh, look at other factors that would be suggestive of a pheochromocytoma. Mm. Um, I think that's, is that urine metanephrines? Yep. Mm -hmm. And that might be something to look at. Um, maybe if there were periods of lost time, so in conjunction with uh, history, I might ask questions that would be suggestive of uh, referring for an EEG. Mm -hmm. And then um, I might I might do a few things because I think in a way we're asking about the differential in, in part assuming that we've kind of ruled out all the pertinent history but along the lines um, 
uh, of a talk screen that might show something like stimulants, mm -hmm. uh, caffeine ingestion, uh, in preparation for a test, I might ask something about how many cups of coffee or um, something that I have a deep fondness for, how many, how many cups of Diet Coke have you had today? <laughs> and, and I don't want to take all of them, so maybe there are more hanging out there that we might think about as, as something that would potentially be tested. Yeah. So the two additional tests that I thought of ordering, just because anytime someone comes in with chest pain, an EKG, it's a really good cheap test to order. And then because of the respiratory symptoms, maybe pulmonary function tests are pretty inexpensive. Um, but then I thought doing a thorough history and physical exam would be good. And on that, he describes, um, I asked about his sleep and his caffeine intake. And he said that he had actually had um, more caffeine than he would normally have. And so that was kind of the way he was able to calm himself down. He, he felt that maybe this could be due to the caffeine and that was kind of his way of calming himself down and making him feel less stressed about it. But he still had a significant amount of distress about what could happen in the future and if it could happen again. So in this case scenario, I was a bad doctor and I didn't do anything and I sent him out into the world. He comes back two months later and he's still terrified of having another attack. And because this has been causing him so much distress, he stopped going to school because he's worried that it could happen again. And now he's coming to see me because he thinks that he wants to drop out of school because he doesn't want to do this anymore. Um, at this point, I have a, I've described a very DSM, uh, di a very DSM characteristic diagnosis. So does anyone know what I'm going for? <laughs> well, it sounds like you could be leaning towards a panic disorder. Wow, good job, Gio. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Not a lot of mystery here. Is <laughs> hey, let's get together and talk about panic disorder. <laughs> okay. How are we going to do it so it sounds like a mystery? I don't know. <laughs> and then suddenly yeah. we start panicking. So panic disorder, I, I want to, now based on this case, um, I, I want to focus on three or four things today. The, f the next thing I'd like to do is talk about the diagnosis, how, um, how the diagnosis has perhaps changed a little bit with the DSM-5 from the DSM-4-TR, if anybody's aware of that, and kind of the unique characteristics of, of the diagnosis. The, uh, I think one of you kind of said, hey, let's do a history dive and see where this comes from. How did we sort of learn about panic disorder? What do we know? And how did we start to build these names around it and so forth? Or, or something completely different. Um, we didn't we didn't talk a lot about the game plan on this before, so it'll be as much a mystery to me as it is to <laughs> the listeners today. And then I th I think uh, treatments, and we have a couple of surprises up our sleeves in terms of treatments. So don't turn the podcast off early. And then lastly, uh, test questions. And then uh, to kind of sum it all up high-yield facts that we think might be important to end with. So, so let's go ahead and get back to diagnosis now. We've talked about this being a fairly classic uh, DSM-5 presentation of panic disorder, and I think one of you had uh, the assignment of talking about the criteria for diagnosing panic disorder. You got that, Gio? Yeah, so there's a couple of a few important things. Um, one of the big ones is definitely like a timeline, so it was important in the vignette 
that you said that he came back like two months later. So an important detail you'd want to know is if throughout those two months was the patient still worrying about either a recurring attack, uh, quote unquote going crazy, or some kind of um, consequence of the panic attack like a heart attack. But the DSM uh, specifies at least one month or more of that. Um, so uh, in addition to that, um, the patients can experience like a recurrent um, episodes that are largely unexpected and uh, they can happen multiple times a day or they can happen just a few times a month. And then another important factor is um, changes in behavior. A lot of times, um, let's say if, you know, somebody was to go shopping at Target and they had a panic attack, and if they started to avoid going to Target, you know, one of their favorite stores or something, then that would be an avoidance behavior. Um, and that could also lead into or is related to a sensation no, uh, common with panic attacks is agoraphobia. So it's when you feel kind of trapped somewhere where you can't get help or you can't get out. Um, and that can get worse for patients too. But a lot of the important factors also to meet the criteria is you have to have at least uh, four out of about almost 13 symptoms. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a little mnemonic that I saw in first aid that I want to share. And it's called the panics, D-A and then panics. The panics. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So we should uh, go through that. Um, so D is for. Can, can I jump in before you get there? So I want I want to back up just a little bit, and that is to summarize what you've said up to this point. And that, and what you've said essentially is there are four big criteria for the diagnosis of panic disorder. The first is you have to have panic attacks, and you're going to describe those with the panics in just a moment. Mm -hmm. Second, you have to have. Um, something that Valentina talked about, which is you have to have this period of time after at least one of these attacks that are ongoing and unexpected, right, that you have this fear that, that you guys talked about, this growing fear that these just won't go away, that you might end up dying, and it starts to affect your behavior. Yeah. The third part of this is it can't be a substance. So when Valentina said earlier that she was a young, terrible physician, I was about to jump in and disagree because I'm absolutely certain that what you told Gio was, um, or whoever the student was that showed up for uh, this, sorry Gio, you're right up my right here, and I, <laughs> I, I just assume that the two of you were role-playing. Um, so you tell the, uh, the student, gosh, maybe cut down on your caffeine intake and then come on back. And so that might be a reasonable way to know for sure whether this is panic attacks or not, right? Mm -hmm. so, so getting rid of the substance possibility. And then lastly, the other exclusions are social anxiety, OCD, PTSD, and separation anxiety. So what's interesting is you can have this kind of a presentation with those four, but those would be considered to be um, more significant in the hierarchy of the diagnosis. So based on that, now the, the, the thing that becomes um, kind of most interesting about panic attacks is the way that our body responds to that. And there's as you mentioned, these 13 mm -hmm. ways that the body seems to respond. Panic attacks are a very physical presentation in many ways with associated cognitions with, with that physical presentation. So I'm going to have you teach us the panics. Yeah. And at some point we may go back and talk a little bit about why the criteria might make some of the test questions that and the test principles difficult, right? Whether it's timeline related, whether it's differential related or the exclusionary criteria related. Because the reality is there's not a lot of test questions that are solely focused on this patient has panic attacks, can you figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so let's hear the panics. Yeah, so the panics, so the D is 
uh, for a couple of things. It's dizziness. Um, it also can be feeling faint or lightheaded. And it's also depersonalization and derealization, which is like a detachment from yourself or from your, your thoughts. Um, so the person might feel like they're experiencing something outside of their outside of themselves. So that's depersonalization. I, I can never keep these straight, so I had to write it down. Mm -hmm. And I think derealization is when things seem unreal. Okay. So those are two separate terms that you might see uh, tested independently, but I doubt it. If you get one or the other, you're probably on your way. So D, again, yeah. is... So dizziness, depersonalization, and derealization. Okay. So who can guess what this, the first A is for? It, anxiety? No, but that's a good one, but it actually doesn't. It's, it's just a filler. <laughs> oh, oh, it was a trick question. Yeah. Oh, so, man, you're going to make but, such a great attending. <laughs> <laughs> so the P is actually palpitations and paresthesia, so they can get numbness. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't want to jump ahead. C can I interrupt there for just a moment with WK? So, yeah. so when I started looking at these criteria as an early practitioner, I, I was amazed that one of the questions I could ask was very simple. It was something along the lines of, you, you had this feeling you were going to die. It sounds pretty terrifying. I try to do it in a little bit better voice than this, right? Can you tell me some of the other things that were going on that you felt in your body, right? And that's amazing what happens and how consistently you might hear, well, my, my fingers go numb, my, my tongue goes numb, my lips go numb. Um, these, these, my heart starts racing, right? These, these physical symptoms, just, just saying, what do you feel in your body? It seems to open up this amazing gateway to just the spilling out of information. And it, it made it really easy to not have to go, okay, let's see, did you have palpitations? Check. Uh, did you have paresthesias? And they say, w w what do you mean by that? And you go, uh, let's see, I know I was in medical school at one point, <laughs> right? So, so just this open-ended question I really like for trying to figure out what's happening with somebody's body for those physical symptoms. Yeah, so one of the symptoms I was not too familiar with as far as studying and reading through vignettes, if, um, patients can have abdominal distress, um, so that's the A. The N would be numbness or nausea. The I is for intense fear of dying, losing control, or going crazy. The C is for chills, um, could also be like heat flashes type of things. The C is also for chest pain and a choking sensation. And then the S is for a couple of things, so sweating, shaking, and shortness of breath. So I think sometimes the shortness of breath could be related to the paresthesias or the numbness. I, I kind of feel that way too. When I think about this, whether it's true or not, that this, these are how these symptoms tie together, I think about this surge of norepinephrine coursing through the body, right? I think about hyperventilation, what that may, might mean for the sensations that we feel in our extremities. And, uh, and then from there, uh, shortness of breath, nausea, seem to be very fear-related, right? Um, so, so to me, I, I just kind of think of these principles as sort of a general way of remembering it, and then the rest seem to fall into place for me. Although I'm not sure how derealization or depersonalization might be related to some surge in adrenaline. Maybe we'll yeah. find a paper on that at some point. Who knows? Yeah. All right, so the panics. We the got panics. it panics, yep. All right, so 13 criteria. Maybe we can group them a little bit in terms of autonomic response and physiological response to the, the activities. And my own experience has been that people really have a tough time remembering I've very much other than I thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. That's so common. Or I feel like I'm, I was going crazy. 
and and the those words it's amazing how commonly those words are preserved it's 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 almost as if whoever wrote the textbook on this listened to the patients exactly and just copied the words down because it's so common um, history dive so I have a history of panic disorders and uh, while discovering it I wanted to kind of present it in a way uh, so you you have a history of panic disorders. <laughs> no, <laughs> looking, right. looking over the history of panic disorders, not mine. <laughs> um, I was in, I was I wanted to, to I guess describe it in a way that if you were this patient and you got in a time traveler a time travel machine went back in time, what would they diagnose you as? So if you went back to about 400 BC in Greece. Uh, they have Hippocrates. They have everybody talking there about all the four biles. Do you guys remember the four biles? Or not the four biles, four humors. Sorry. Mm, bile one is of one of them. Bile. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two biles. Two biles. Dark. Oh. There's black, yeah, dark, which is they call melancholia, which is, yeah. And then the other one was light bile? There's, yeah, ye yellow, yellow <laughs> bile. Good. And that was associated with the liver, maybe? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I actually read this recently. And then Great. was blood one of the others? Blood is the other one. And there's one more. Achoo. Phlegm. Phlegm. So they thought that these four things, the these four humors, <laughs> kind, of, kind of determined your, your health. And so when you had too much... Uh, black bile <laughs> uh, you had melancholia which literally means black bile s disorder basically so they would have treated you if you had depression anxiety panic panic attacks they'd have thought oh he has melancholia he has too much black bile and that persisted for the next couple like thousand years basically uh, then Avicenna came about a thousand AD and he is a Persian polymath which means he's like basically the Persian version of uh, uh, Persian version. Persian version of Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> Try to say that ten times fast. <laughs> um, he is very bright, and he actually separated the melancholia into four separate subtypes based on how they presented. And interestingly, how he described several of his subtypes sound a lot like bipolar disorders. He had um, a hypomania description, a mania description. A really depressed one, and then one that was an anxiety kind of with like depression in it. Anyways, uh, go down the years of time. They said that uh, anxiety and depression are caused by evil thoughts and sins. Um, then you have Colin, which who, he was ahead of his time, and, and he coined the term neurosis in 1803. Uh, his idea of neurosis, which kind of covered anything that was um, going, any dysfunction in someone's uh, brain or their mind, where they focus on something too much or they eat too much or have too much anxiety or panic attacks. Um, it finally caught up and people in the mid-1800s said anxiety was caused by a sympathetic nervous system dysfunction. So, anyways... Uh, if you then appeared later on in, finally, the 1870s um, in the Civil War, uh, a doctor named Da Costa would have probably diagnosed you with an irritable heart. He saw many soldiers in the Civil War that they would freeze up and panic and, and they couldn't uh, function. They'd have uh, a high, they'd have tachycardia, palpitations, 
be faint and have uh, hyperventilation. Did I say that one? You did now. (laughs) I I did now. Okay. Um, Then this guy named Lewis came around in 1918 during World War I and uh, stole that term for his own and called it soldier's heart. (laughs) Um, But he especially focused on those four symptoms as well as uh, the fear of it repeating, um, which we know, which we call now as agoraphobia. But he also had the trouble of calling it, uh, saying it's only a problem with males. Only males can have soldier's heart. Um, so then it comes around the 1950s after World War II. Uh, lots of um, research was being done, and uh, after good industry, they found out um, they, they're starting to experiment with some um, drugs such as TCAs, tetracyclic antidepressants. And he noticed, uh, him and his group noticed that there's pathologic anxiety states. Um, and he noticed that there's often com- they're common in phobias and, and with a trauma, a trauma history. Um, anyways, so he would have, they would have probably tried to treat you with something along those lines of like tetracyclic antidepressants. Um, or, or tricyclic antidepressants. At tricyclic, I'm yeah. trying to say, sorry. Yeah, I think so at that time. Maybe um, tetracyclics as well, but antidepressants. Yeah. So then 1960s come around, a lot of drugs are being produced and that's when it becomes basically generally accepted that mood disorders can almost always be separated, be separated from, um, anxiety, um, which is interesting because for the past 2,000 years, it's been melancholia as one big group of these anxiety and depression are the same, and they are have, have the same underlying problems, but now it's kind of, kind of separated where, and it's kind of persisted a little bit in, in today's world where we see, we see anxiety disorders separate from mood disorders, since we've made that distinction, or even still today, there's still a lot of crossover I think what you're saying is we feel like that there's a difference between the two mm-hmm. and maybe a pathological difference in terms of the biological mechanisms. But it's not always clear that the two are always separate, right? There's yes. a lot of togetherness with those two conditions. Yeah. I was looking at an article in preparation for this that talked about maybe diagnostic tests for panic disorder. Did you come across anything along those lines? Uh, infusions of, what is it, sodium lactate? Uh, or infusions, not infusions, but uh, giving people 35% carbon dioxide to try and induce panic attacks. Yeah, there's some there's some research trying to look to see if um, people that have only panic disorder can be tested to find out if it truly is panic disorder mm-hmm. by by giving um, these kinds of tests to them. And the the issue is if we give the same test to somebody that has depression or bipolar disorder or ADHD or whatever else the case may be, will they also have the same outcome? And I didn't finish the article, but I think it was headed to the idea that perhaps we could use 35% carbon dioxide as a test to identify who truly has this condition that would be uh, biologically on some level different than depression and anxiety. And I think that's where we're headed overall, right? That mm-hmm. mechanistically we're maybe more specific than we were 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, I hope. What would that, would that be like for, the, for a patient to go to their doctor and be like, oh, I'm gonna get this, this uh, test today. 
I think that might be pretty brutal. I don't know that anybody really want, that has had a panic attack and feels like they're going to die would want that again. That's a, that's a great question and, and one that didn't even cross my mind. I can imagine it going forward. So, uh, Dr. Stephen, um, yes. what you want to do is, is see if you can make me feel like I'm going to die again. You're going to make my heart race, my fingers go numb, make me feel like it's the worst thing ever happening and you're going to make me go crazy to see if I really have the problem. Yeah, you ready? <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Boy, that would be tough. Good point. Very, very. I'll be here. I can give you a hug. It's okay. <laughs> oh no, COVID. Sorry, never mind. <laughs> and boundaries. All right. So, um, interesting dive into the history. Did you come up with anything that talks about uh, what we think the etiology of some of the symptoms of panic are? For example, is it an autonomic change? Is it? Um, some of the, you know, is it some sort of mechanism in the brain, or did did you see anything that spoke to that in your history dive? Um, no, I, I didn't get to anything much past the 1980s, mm-hmm. which is where truth kind of starts coming unveiled. <laughs> I feel uh, before that, I would say everybody was pretty consensus on the on the idea that um, uh, either the bile <laughs> was, was out of whack, or they thought the sympathetic nervous system was just was over overreacting. Mm. I want to jump back just a moment ago. So I asked the question about depersonalization and derealization about how I, I couldn't make that fit a noradrenergic mm-hmm. state change. And of course, uh, with four different iPads slash iPhones <laughs> slash computers sitting here, uh, Valentina, you came across something that says what? Yeah, so there was a 2002 paper by Mauricio Sierra et al. Um, and basically they tested through skin conductivity um, and they found that, that there was a link between autonomic response and um, and depersonalization, or they did specifically, yeah, depersonalization. Okay. Um, so. so maybe we can tie all of those things together, you know, as symptoms essentially of an autonomic change. Yeah. Also, um, I remembered with the lactate infusion that you were talking you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I saw an Anki card about it, uh, and I couldn't really remember the details, so I looked it up. But basically, there's a theory that um, the reason why, because it sounds strange that a lactate infusion having increased sensitivity to that is um, a predictor of who has panic disorder and who does mm-hmm. not. But there's a theory that it's because the amygdala is sensitive to lower pHs, and the amygdala is the brain region involved with a lot of the fear responses. So it makes sense why a lactic acid infusion, which would lower the pH, would make the amygdala maybe hyper-responsive in someone who has a predisposition to have a hyper-responsive amygdala. Anyway, I thought that and, was interesting. And I think CO2 would do the same thing. Exactly. I, I read or I saw something. There was a, a physician, and I, I don't remember if it was Klein or not, uh, who seemed to think that it was the choking fear response, right? So mm-hmm. maybe an aberrant response to I'm choking to death, I better fight for my life. Right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, don't, I didn't see anything that kind of backed that up other than you know, this, this link between the amygdala and the changes in uh, pH. Yeah, super interesting. It, it is fascinating stuff. Oh, go ahead, Jill. As far as like ideological cause, I just saw mentioning that um, genetics could play a role in it. And if you have a first degree relative, with panic disorder, then you're more likely to have it. Um, other than that, I just saw psychosocial stressors and history of child's physical or sexual abuse. 
I, I saw that as a risk factor as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know that the, the risk factors are tested on very commonly, are they? For the, the principles that are tested for the shelf exam? Not to my knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most interesting articles I, I have ever read was about the, like the history of panic attacks and, 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 or panic disorder. And what it talked about was how there's this really uh, pretty significant onset of panic disorder in adolescence. And this information is also in the DSM right now. That, that information is made it there. And that a lot of people have that onset in adolescence, particularly uh, young women past puberty. And it seems to kind of escalate through the 20s. And, and then there's kind of another group of people that show up with uh, panic disorder sort of in the mid-20s. Uh, median is early, what, 20 to 24. 20. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and there's really not a difference between how those uh, symptoms seem to manifest or the morbidity in, uh, associated with those disorders. So I was intrigued that we seem to have like what looks like two different kinds of panic disorder, but gosh, you can't really tell the difference mm -hmm. when you look at somebody, right? Um, I want to talk about treatments for panic disorder. And uh, let's see, Colby, is that you that had yeah. treatments? Yeah. All right, let's see what you got for uh, us today. Pharmacological first, I guess. Yeah, let's start with pharmacological. Um, okay, so there's three SSRIs that are approved. Um, fluoxetine, paroxetine, and sertraline. And they're all, and I think they're all approved for acute treatment panic disorder too, so. I didn't realize there was a difference in the labeling. That is pretty cool. I saw that in there, and I thought you thought, because you know SSRIs, the the standard thing is, give them give them two months and they'll work. But mm -hmm. but this is something. It's interesting because it, if you talk to a lot of people that will take SSRIs for anxiety, and and I'm by the way I'm stepping clear out of the literature at the moment, and I'm not going to try and say that that this would have anything with shelf. But my experience has been that there are a lot of people that can take an SSRI and almost immediately feel better from anxiety. And I've always been surprised by that because, of course, when we talk about treatment of depression, it, it's sort of a, you got to give it at least a month before you know if it's yeah. working kind of thing, right? Well, anecdotally, I've talked to patients, too, that have taken it, and a day or two later, they feel that energy, that activation, and they're like, oh, is this, and, and you have to kind of explain to them, well, this is expected, this will go away, you're not going to be this... <laughs> you know, almost that anxiety they get from it. it. Or the lack of anxiety from it, right? Yeah. Because there does seem to see, be some effect. So three SSRIs, fluoxetine, paroxetine, sertraline. Yes. And uh, then SNRIs. SNRI, venlafaxine, mm -hmm. uh, XR, which I guess makes sense. That's that's the one that uh, acts like a SSRI at low doses, right? Mm-hmm. So pretty similar. You start seeing the... the um, SNRI dose pop up somewhere around, I want to say 225, and that's probably when that's you start seeing the heart, the blood pressure stuff show up too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, uh, benzodiazepines. And uh, generally speaking, I, I think most people feel like benzodiazepines are not a good choice, right? Even though they have the FDA approval, I kind of wonder if they would get that approval now. Yeah, they're, they're approved short term because of, of obvious problems with them. And there's only two approved, uh, alprazolam and clonazepam. So. Very good. All right, so any mnemonics or any memory devices to be able to remember those treatments? Any sketchy pictures I, in your I, mind I, at the moment? So for um, boards, as far as I've seen, um, they didn't focus on which specific SSRIs. It was 
SSRIs, SNRIs for long-term, and then for acute panic attacks, like in the moment, benzodiazepine would be the correct response. Mm -hmm. Like if someone's currently having a panic attack and they show up in the emergency room. So let me let me just talk about that very briefly. How long, if you looked through the diagnostic criteria for the DS, in the DSM five, how long does a panic attack usually last? Minutes. Minutes. How long does it take for onset of action of a benzodiazepine? More than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so there are some problems with with this that I'm aware of, and I still am. I'm, I'm just. Um, benzodiazepines come with so much uh, liability, cognitive liability, and so forth. That that quite often my goal has been to to say, listen, this panic attack is not going to kill you, and there's nothing I can give you that will help you once it starts. You'll only notice that you'll take a pill, and five minutes later you'll feel better because, well, generally that's what happens with a panic attack, right? So so anybody that's had benzodiazepines though before would tell you that of course they work and they're you know not going to leave your office without getting more <laughs> and that becomes mm -hmm. an issue too so mm -hmm. um, the the standard of care is what you will be tested on my own experience is benzodiazepines are are usually unhelpful over the long run and of course um, the issue isn't so much as short run use as it is helping a patient know that the benzodiazepine, this is the one prescription you get because after this you need to have therapeutic skills to manage it and you need to be able to have a long-term solution, not, not a benzodiazepine. And, and having that discussion early on in treatment is very important. This is not a long-term strategy if you do use benzos. This is the only prescription you get. It's 10 alprazolam or 5 alprazolam or whatever the case may be. Okay. Other treatments? Uh, therapy. Uh, of course, there's uh, CBT, but it's, uh, I, I think it's a little bit different than just regular CBT because they do uh, what they call introceptive exposure. So, uh, a symptom induction, like you're talking about with the um, carbon dioxide and stuff, but they'll have them to mimic the physical symptoms that bring on the panic. They'll have them uh, like jog in place to elevate their heart rate or have them spin around and get dizzy, have, have them mimic these different symptoms. And then they, they said uh, cognitive restructuring of catastrophic misinterpretation. So basically think through like, uh, I'm feeling dizzy, but, but I'm not gonna die. I'm having these symptoms, but I'm gonna be okay. And you go through that and get, get worse and worse and acclimate to it that you're gonna be okay even with these physical symptoms. And then, uh, and that's therapy. And then relapse prevention. Have you? They they have therapy less and less often, and you come back for kind of a just a refresher, I guess, once in a while. So CBT is a wonderful treatment, and in fact, the B in cognitive behavioral therapy is um, originally was these kinds of behavioral experiments, and the whole goal is we're going to think about these things and prove or disprove your conclusions. Panic attacks have a lot of. Um, incorrect uh, conclusions associated with them. For example, in the case scenario you presented, I think the student said that he was sure he was going to die or that if he if he moved he was going to pass out or whatever the case might have been, right? And these, these um, flawed conclusions can be tackled in the cognitive portion and then in the behavioral portion you can actually do these experiments and, and then respond to the experiments and have proof to yourself that, right. that your conclusions are inaccurate. So it rewire neural pathways to you're having this happen but you can think and, it, and, it, and it's okay. 
Yeah, so you, right. so you replace inaccurate cognitions with more accurate cognitions over time. Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's interesting. It was uh, close to uh, exposure therapy for external cues for specific phobias and stuff like locations that would trigger panic. You can do the exposure type therapy. And, and just to back up a little bit, when you're talking about the exposure therapy, that would be for panic attacks themselves but not for panic disorder. And the distinction is that yeah. panic attacks can be expected or unexpected, but panic disorder, the panic attacks always need to be unexpected. Or to, you have to have at least some of those panic attacks must be unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. so, so if you know where you can trigger them, that's panic attacks. If you don't always know where you trigger them, then that's unexpected. That becomes the, panic, the disorder. panic disorder. So you have to have those unexpected panic attacks to have the diagnosis of panic disorder. And then the, uh, the surprise one is the app. There's an FDA-approved app for treating panic disorder called Freespira, and it's a breathing, breathing app. I, don't know, I, I didn't get to look at it too much, but on their uh, page they said it's because... Uh, it's hard to get a nine-year-old to do CBT. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there's an app for yeah, that. Yeah, makes sense. And did you, did you see outcomes associated with the app? So this is an app that has FDA approval, just to be clear. There's not a medication that's produced. There's not a therapy that's delivered in, in, uh, in uh, like a clinical setting. This is an app that you can pay for and download with an FDA approval to treat panic. Is that, is that the way this works? Yeah. Okay, and then it looks like, I think, Gio, you said that there was another app that was anticipating FDA approval in the near future. Yeah, it's called Headspace. So it's um, breathing techniques as well as meditation techniques and practicing mindfulness. What's interesting is that these would require, like, randomized controlled trials, it seems like. <laughs> so it might be one of the things we look up in the future. So um, I found the FDA study on mm -hmm. Freespira. So they did a single arm unblinded because I think it'd be pretty hard to blind you <laughs> if you're using the app or not. Um, and they used it primarily with PTSD. Uh -huh. um, and they found that the primary effectiveness hypothesis was like in 50% of the participants. And two months post-treatment, they found that the proportion of responders was 93%. Wow. with a confidence interval between 77 and 99 percent hmm. and a rate of remission was 48 percent i think those numbers are pretty favorable to ssris maybe even a little bit better mm. that's interesting not randomized controlled but very good data uh let's see test questions what are the principles that are tested most commonly? And I don't know who tackled this. I know you've all had your chance to jump in. But what are the principles that are tested um, on panic disorder that we need to be aware of? Basically, we kind of mentioned one earlier in an acute situation, you know, a patient coming to the ER and having a bunch of the symptoms that we described, and then they love to ask, like, what is the appropriate treatment? So in that case, you know, maybe uh, as much benzo. As, I, as much as I hate it, <laughs> yeah. a benzo is the right answer. Benzo, right? yeah. Uh, but for long-term maintenance, you know, they you'd want to think SSRI. Mm -hmm. um, I, go ahead. One thing I found was uh, a common distractor, well, two of them, 
Uh, the main one that can be really difficult is um, social anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then the other one to dis to differentiate it from is avoidant or agoraphobia because you can have symptoms of agoraphobia be due to the panic disorder, but it's due to a different cause. So the overlying diagnosis would actually be panic disorder with parts of it that are agoraphobia. Mm -hmm. um, and avoidant would be... Um, it is also distinct because you don't have these um, anxiety attacks, right? So those distinctions. And then for social anxiety, um, you would have more of a vignette that describes a patient getting anxious in these social situations specifically um, and not different panic attacks at different situations that aren't always socially ingrained. Or In other words, that expected panic attack as opposed to the unexpected panic attack and always associated in that social situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was when I was looking at the, the uh, when we talked about test questions earlier, I think we only came up with a couple that were panic disorder. And Stephen, I think you, you did the search on that in the database too, right? Did you come up with other panic disorder questions? Uh, oh, oh, you guys kind of nailed it already. It was really just down to the ones I found at least from AMBOSS mm -hmm. were differentiating it from panic disorder, general anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, specific phobias, um, and agoraphobia being one of those, um, and uh, actually substance-induced anxiety disorder. Um, and those are kind of interesting to, to kind of look for because they could trick you up if they're if they're like a if they just include somewhere in that stem that they have needle marks on their arms, or if they seem <laughs> intoxicated or some some kind of signs like that. Then you have to if they have midriasis or, or something along those lines, you're going to be cued into thinking of substance use, anxiety. And, and again, I, I thought social anxiety was probably the big one. I want to jump over to something that has changed in the last number of years. So in the past, when we talked about uh, agoraphobia with our students, it was uh, panic disorder with agoraphobia or panic disorder without agoraphobia. And interestingly enough, those are now two different diagnoses, right? And, and I want to just cover the criteria for agoraphobia quickly. Did anybody look at that at all? No. So, y Stephen, you did a little bit. Briefly, yeah. Um, but agoraphobia is the fear of being enclosed in an open public space or crowds or just simply being alone. Um, yeah, there's actually five specific situations that would meet the criteria. The first is oh, being okay. in an open space. Um, a closed space, lines, outside the home alone or in public uh, transportation, and then there's this fear of being unable to escape that situation, I think is the way that kind of comes down to those five situations. And you have to have two of those five, and um, it, it almost always provokes fear to be in those situations. Again, that fear could cause a panic attack, but that wouldn't be panic disorder unless there were also uh, unexpected panic attacks. Um, there's a lot of avoidance associated with that, and I think you spoke to the issue of avoidance with the avoidant personality disorder, uh, Valentina, and the fear is disproportional to the risk, right? We, we, um, we're we absolutely certain that if we're at a venue in Vegas that um, we're going to be shot at from a hotel window and everybody will stampede us, and we're certain that that will happen no matter what, and yet the odds of that happening again seem to be relatively lower, right? It seems like the steps to take care of that. It also has to last six months, and it has to affect social and occupational functioning and more. 
and it's uh, something that would normally be beyond the condition uh, that might cause you to avoid those spaces. And I think it mentioned things like irritable bowel where you were worried about being close to a bathroom. So you'd have to have something beyond uh, just what would normally be associated with the condition. And then one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this, and I don't have any idea why, uh, most of this made sense to me. Yeah, look it up, guys. It's, this is fascinating to me. So we mentioned the exclusionary criteria, in, in other words, the hierarchical nature of social uh, anxiety disorder, um, PTSD, OCD. OCD, and is there one more? Separation anxiety, right? We, we mentioned the hierarchical nature of those, that if those are present, then you really just can't diagnose this because we assume that it's part of that bigger uh, diagnosis. But there's one diagnosis in the, or one uh, exclusionary diagnosis in agoraphobia that I was surprised by and it made some sort of sense and that is body dysmorphic disorder. Hmm. And I assume it has something to do with the fear of being in spaces where somebody might see how horrible you look, right? Or how horrible you feel like you look to other people is what I should say. Hmm. And so I was kind of surprised by that. Mm, yeah, surprising, but it makes sense now that you said that. I, I, I assume that that's the reasoning, but I didn't. I didn't read that. Um, that's pretty specific. A very question specific, to ask yeah. when you're talking to somebody about it. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, are you you're afraid to be there because you're afraid to be there or because? Again, I think it goes back to the like the open-ended <laughs> questions that I uh, I'm getting to where I enjoy those so much more. They tell mm -hmm. me so much. Um, I think you guys have watched that in our in our interviewing style. Um, it lends itself very well to motivational interviewing, but I think the question I would ask is, tell me, tell me why you're afraid of going out into those spaces. What is it that really is, you know, terrifying to you? And that would then, instead of me trying to guess what it is and check mm -hmm. things off the list, I can just hear it. And instead of asking seven or eight yes/no questions, I can get one question that brings the buy-in of the the conversation and hopefully get the answer that makes the most sense. And I think usually you would see patients that have agoraphobia in a clinical setting. Typically, they would generally not be wanting to hide information from you quite as much, right? They generally mm -hmm. think they're going to be more willing to um, tell you their experience as accurately as they possibly can, which is a little bit different than our patients with schizophrenia who are afraid of admitting that they're hearing voices. So I, th I think the report would be more likely to be accurate. All right, let's, uh, let's close it up. We're, oddly enough, almost all the all these podcasts last about 45 to 50 <laughs> minutes. I've noticed that. It doesn't matter what we're shooting for. They just seem to go that long. Um, but let's let's do tie this up. Uh, first of all, I very much appreciate this. You guys did this podcast with roughly an hour and a half notice. Um, some of you scoured Anki decks. Uh, some of you scoured uh, other, other uh, uh, resources. Other modalities. Other modalities. <laughs> Um, and yet I think we had a, a very interesting discussion about something that we wanted to have kind of this very straightforward case presentation and, and not go down the proverbial pro forbidden phrase rabbit hole, right? And I think we did a good job. We so close to finishing uh. the podcast without it. But I think, I think we're saying we didn't do that, right? I think that's, that's an okay, and I, I'm really happy with the way that I think this is a, probably a fairly high-yield discussion, even though it doesn't seem like this is a topic that's tested a, a tremendous amount. So uh, high-yield take-home points. Let's start, let's see, Gio, you want to give us the first high-yield? No, I'm, I'm actually going to start with Stephen and go clockwise. All right, highest-yield thing is... Uh, Pancreatic attacks. Sorry, pancreatic attacks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I meant uh, 
panic attacks and anxiety and depression are all caused by black bile. There you go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just say be careful with the side effects on your your medications, even the SSRIs. you got to watch with, with the serotonin and other things. You know, interestingly enough, there was a note I made, and <coughs> it was in the DSM-5, where it talked about nocturnal uh, panic attacks, waking up in the middle of the night with a panic attack. I see a lot of you guys shaking your heads. Mm -hmm. And that kind of surprised me. We're, we're used to hearing uh, veterans who, if you work in the VA, you're, you're used to hearing veterans talk about waking up, um, acting out some of the traumatic events from the past, can't breathe, heart beating out of their chest, in a very uh, high autonomic state. But to wake up, Outside of that scenario, I wasn't very familiar with that. So nocturnal panic attacks would be almost by well, by definition unexpected, mm -hmm. right? So unexpected panic attacks. And one of the things I, I think I understood from that uh, section was that our patients that have at least the nocturnal panic attacks, and, and maybe I'm just not reading the whole thing and understanding it, but at least that, tend to be patients who also are less tolerant of side effects of medications and have a really tough time staying on those. And I think anybody that's treated very many people with panic disorder will notice that some patients that have panic disorder just really, really struggle to say, I can take a medication and stick with it. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, you know, on, on our end, I think we, we assume, rightly or wrongly, that if you could just get them to take that medication, it would work. But there might be something about wrong medication for the biology that we just don't understand yet. Yeah. And I think that might be part of what you're talking about is that group of patients that's just hard to get them to take medication. Yeah, difficult to, to treat with meds. Although benzodiazepines usually are tolerated by that group, and that's where you run into that long-term long benzodiazepine that somebody has you know, been forced into a corner, presumably, had no other options. They're trying to help the patient, and then you inherit that patient, and, and it's... I, I have heard people say that, uh, you know, this benzodiazepine is the only thing that works for me. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I think you'll hear that more too, all of you. <laughs> all right, Valentina. Um, I think the, the having that time of at least a month or more, I think that's an important factor between panic attack and panic disorder. Uh, absolutely, I think we talk about timelines with schizophrenia so much, right? Uh, zero to one month is brief psychotic disorder. One month to six months is schizophreniform, and six months and after is schizophrenia. But we we don't seem to pound that same concept here, which is you have to have that ongoing, not feeling of dread. That's not quite the right word, but that distress. ongoing distress, feeling that you have something medically wrong. It, it persists after some panic attack where you just know that things are no longer the same. You don't feel right. You feel like. You know, you're, you're broken, you, you now are going crazy, whatever the case may be, however that's described, right? And that month of those symptoms are very important to mm -hmm. catalog in terms of the diagnosis. Very well done. Yeah, so lastly, you have to know the common symptoms that present with it, so don't forget the panics. <laughs> the panics, don't forget the panics. Where are you from again? <laughs> Miami, Florida. Would somebody say, I got the panics, man? And <laughs> they could say that they're downtown. <laughs> All right, so Gio from downtown Miami says, don't forget the panics, man. All right, on that note, uh, thank you very, very much, everybody, for a, a podcast that I think will be very helpful in terms of anxiety, something that we haven't tackled in the past, and I think something that's very helpful. And on that note, team out. Team, team out. out. We did it better this time. <laughs>